All right, well, good evening, Alma Stone. Uh, in case you weren't here, uh, last week we kicked off uh, part one of a two-part series, two-part teaching on spiritual warfare as part of our Alamo Stone at the Movies uh, series, which this might be the conclusion of? One more next, one more next week. Okay. Um, so last week we kind of connected with the movie Wonder Woman, and I chose that one because the movie features this group of like really highly trained, highly equipped war warriors, the Amazons, and they live in isolation. They live in this like bubble island paradise Ignoring the fact that there is this world war going on all around them. Um, they're just kind of like isolated, right? They're trying to kind of turn a blind eye. But when the war does come to their island, Diana takes on the role of Wonder Woman and she goes out on a mission to stop the war by defeating, by going to, to defeat Ares, the god of war. And so from this movie, I, I kind of relate that for us as believers, uh, we got to be careful not to fall into that same trap of like thinking it's okay for us to live in ignorance or isolation from a spiritual war that is in fact going on all around us. We don't want to fall into that trap. And I also like the fact that in one in the movie, Wonder Woman immediately recognizes, you know what, the Germans—they're not really the enemy. The enemy is this like spiritual, like transcendent enemy who's like influencing both sides. Uh, all these mere mortals to destroy each other and more. That's, that's the real enemy that she's going out after. And so I think that's something that we can kind of connect with. Um, it's kind of tiny up there, but the, the key scripture is that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces uh, of evil in the heavenly places. We're not at war with flesh and blood. Um, for those of you all who weren't here, the recording is on alamostone.org, so you can check it out. But a very brief recap. We looked at five principles. Principle one, we're at war. Satan and his angels are at war with God. And when Satan was cast out of God's presence in heaven, where was he thrown down to? To the earth. So the war that's going on is very much present here on earth. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we are citizens of heaven. And part of our responsibility, our obligation as citizens of heaven is to be a part of this war. It's our duty, it's our commandment to join in the fight. The second principle is, of course, that our war is spiritual. So again, our key verse, Ephesians 6, 12, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual war that we're in. And so the way that we fight this war needs to be fighting with spiritual weapons, which is God's word and prayer. The third principle, we looked at how the spiritual world is connected with the physical world and specifically looking at in ourselves as people. We looked at how 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 describes us in terms of being kind of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Our body is our physical flesh and blood, our blood, our bones, our biochemistry, everything physiological. Our soul includes our mind, our will, our thoughts, our emotions, our intellect, our desires, and our spirit is the part of us that is able to interact with God on a level that's, well, spiritual. Uh, our spirit is what enables us to be able to worship enables us to be able to pray, that enables us to be able to understand spiritual truth of God's word. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So typically, it would be with our souls, with our, our mind and our intellect that we like rationalize and understand things, but for the things of God, it's, it's not enough just for our mind, that part of our soul to grasp it. It takes the interaction of a regenerated spirit in order to accept the things, uh, the spiritual things of God as being true. So three components, 
of one person. And we also look quite a bit about how these three components of ourselves, body, soul, and spirit, they're all very closely interrelated. And the health of one component can have an impact and influence on the health of another. Uh, principle four, we looked at the four kind of major categories or root issues of spiritual injury or spiritual unhealthiness, uh, which you might call an unhealthy spirit. First, we looked at how sin takes us out from under the protection of God's law, of his good, perfect, righteous law that's there for our protection, leading us instead, if we're not in his blessing and favor, we're in the realm of disfavor, of a curse. Um, and we looked at how the consequences associated with sin, they come to us as a result of our own personal sin, of course. But scripture also confirms that sin, that disobedience, carries a curse that left unchecked can have a tendency to carry on to children, to grandchildren, to the third and fourth generation. Next, we saw how if the enemy is able to gain a, a beachhead, a foothold against us in what we believe, it's a really dangerous thing. He can get us to believe lies about ourselves, lies about others, and lies about God. The truth is, Jesus died to set us completely free, but we're not able to walk in that freedom in the areas where we're not able to accept what is really true. Uh, and the final thing that we looked at last week was the effect of wounds on our spirits. We looked at how being deeply wounded leaves us uh, really vulnerable to, one, internalizing lies as a kind of like self-defense mechanism about the situation that happened. The, the enemy can very easily try to plant lies in our minds. And two, when the wounds are especially deep, it can be very easy to have this deep-seated like unforgiveness and bitterness. And that's a condition that is absolutely toxic to our spirit, and it makes room for the enemy to work harm against us. The fourth category of spiritual injury is the effect of demons. We didn't really go into that last week, so we're going to be covering that in a lot more depth tonight. We wrapped up last week with principle five that we are in this war together as the body of Christ. So our aim should be to join alongside one another. As brothers and sisters in Christ, as one body, that we should be speaking the truth and love to one another. That we should uplift, encourage, exhort one another. That we should bear one another's burdens and we should pray for one another. So, now that we've kind of laid that foundation about the spiritual war that we're all engaged in, we're going to start to turn our attention now in part two to the enemy in this war. And, you know, you think any good soldier really needs to read the military intelligence report on the enemy that's given to them by their, by their commanding officer. And so we're going to start by looking at what does the Bible say about the soldiers now on the enemy's side of this war, demons. Um, there's another section in there about the enemy's tactics. We're actually going to skip over that for the sake of time because we've got a lot to cover. And I really want us to get to how we as believers can make an effective counterattack in this war um, to be able to reclaim ground that the enemy has really stolen in people's lives. And finally, we're gonna wrap up with some encouragement. Some wonderful news that, you know, the war's outcome is already decided, it's certain. Jesus has already won the strategic victory on the cross, and he is certain to return and put an end once and for all to this war. And finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't just have a quick reminder that all the power for spiritual warfare is not from ourselves, it's from God alone. So we have nothing in ourselves, we have nothing in our flesh to wage war against the enemy apart from God. So before we dive into the word, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your work for us on the cross. We thank you that you loved us so much 
that you died to save us, to rescue us. Lord, we thank you that you made the first move. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit, that you have not left us orphans, but that you have adopted us as sons and daughters. We thank you that you've equipped us. And Lord, that by your Spirit, we have um, all the power and all the strength that we need uh, for everything that you're going to call us to do. Lord, I thank you for this body of Christ. And I thank you, Lord, that uh, you use each of us, one another, to build up and encourage um, and, and to bear one another's burdens. I pray, Lord, that um, you would speak by your Holy Spirit tonight, that the truth of your word would go forth. Uh, Lord, that we would not be fearful, but that we would be encouraged by the fact that you have already won the victory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, our first point to look at tonight is kind of carryover from last week. It's one that we didn't get to, that fourth major category, that root issue of spiritual unhealthiness, and that's the effects of the enemy's soldiers, referred to in the Bible as demons or unclean spirits. Now, the subject of demons can often be kind of an uncomfortable one, but their reality and their activity is an absolute biblical fact. If you acknowledge that the Bible is true, you kind of also have to acknowledge that demons are a reality. There's no denying it. Jesus directly dealt with demons in the gospel by casting them out of people. And he commanded his disciples to do it too. And if we try to convince ourselves that demons aren't real, that demons and their effects, uh, they're like super rare, like nobody ever deals with that, or that somehow as believers, like we get a pass, like, we don't have to deal with that, uh, then we're trying to believe something that's in direct conflict with the revealed truth in the Bible. And that's very dangerous ground indeed. So I'm not going to belabor the point that demons are real. If you don't believe me, read the Gospels. You'll see. We're going to see a little bit later a number of scriptures where we, as followers of Christ, are commanded to cast them out. But we're not going to get to that just yet. What I want to start with is this question of like, well, how common or how rare is demonic activity or demonic influence in the world generally and in our culture and our society specifically? Based well, on what we can find in the Bible. First, there's one fact that we've got to absolutely establish. Satan is not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere at one time. We saw this verse from uh, Job, where Satan is uh, kind of called to give an audience, or God gives an audience to Satan for him to kind of give an activity report. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. So we see in Satan's report to God, he describes himself as going to and fro, right? So obviously, he's not everywhere at once. He travels from place to place. And we know from John 10 what his mission is. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says that I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So if Satan's goal is to steal and kill and destroy, um, and I firmly believe that his goal in doing that, his desire, is to do that among every single living person that he can possibly get his hands on. First Peter tells us to be sober-minded, to be watchful, that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So if Satan's on this mission of destruction, he is seeking someone to devour. He's seeking people to devour, but he's limited in the sense that he's, he's not omnipresent. He can't beat everywhere at once. How's he going to carry out his mission? He's going to send out his minions in his place, demons, unclean spirits. And so kind of wrestling with this question of like, well, how prevalent is demonic activity 
it would just be like super helpful if scripture just gave us a number of like a, like a head count or a roll call. There's this many demons in the universe because we live in a world of seven billion people. So if the head count of demons is like 20,000, then you'd be like, okay, well, they're probably pretty rare, right? If the head count is in the trillions, you'd be expecting them to pop out behind like every single corner, right? Well, as far as I can tell, there's not a head count, there's not a roll call, there's not a census given to us in scripture. Um, but what we do see is that when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. Revelation uh, chapter 12 and verse four is kind of a symbolic picture, and then in verse nine is a more literal description of what happened. His tail, the dragon, uh, swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Again, we don't know how many angels there are, so we can't just like take that number and divide it by three, and there's our head count either. But I'm imagining there's probably a lot. Don't have a number, but I'm, I'm figuring that God's probably got a lot of angels. My thought. Um, as you read through the Gospels, there's a lot of references to people being brought to Jesus who were oppressed by demons. Here in Matthew 4, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, all those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, and those having seizures, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Later in Matthew, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all those who were sick. Over in Mark, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. So from reading these, I get the impression that the prevalence of demonic oppression is like somewhere on the same ballpark or, or somewhere in, in the same level as people who are suffering from sickness and diseases and pains, because it's mentioned there in the same sense, brought them all the sick, those afflicted with diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons. I, I'm kind of extrapolating here, but it seems to me they're maybe somewhere on the same level. Um, so what I draw from that is, I don't think every single person on the earth is under severe demonic oppression at all times. That doesn't, doesn't jive. But I also wouldn't go so far as to say that it's incredibly rare either. It seems to me it's somewhere in the middle. Like It's not totally ubiquitous, but it's not like totally rare, totally uncommon. And the presence and influence of demons is not something that's restricted to a specific area or a specific people group. Demonic oppression isn't an issue that, like, oh, well, missionaries to third world countries, like, they have to deal with that, but not us. Like, we're, we're immune or whatever. My own personal opinion is that here in the West, the enemy is able to really fly under the radar because our, our Western mindset is that, um, you know, we, our culture is really apt to look for a biochemical cause and a pharmaceutical solution to just about any problem that, that people come up with, right? without even at least considering the possibility of there's some, there may be some supernatural causes of affliction. There may be some demonic oppression. That's not really something that our society is like really apt to even consider, right? But that said, we do have to be very careful to have a holistic viewpoint on human suffering and human illness. Remember that we as people are body and soul and spirit. So we can't look to every single physical or emotional issue and say, aha, that's spiritual attack. We need to be very conscious of physiological as well as psychological roots of people's afflictions while also being aware that there are spiritual factors. 
So tonight I'm going to be focusing on the spiritual factors, but I, I want to be very careful to have this disclaimer. This is not the whole picture of human suffering. Like, if I go, I break my leg, and I have a cast on my leg, I wouldn't ask you to cast the demon of broken-leggedness out of me, <laughs> right? It's a physical, physiological issue. So just, just that disclaimer, what I want you to hear is we're going to be focusing a lot on spiritual warfare, but there are also physiological and psychological issues at play. So these verses here up on the screen, if you look them up in your Bible, you might notice that phrase that's highlighted, oppressed by demons. Some other translations of the Bible render it a little differently. Uh, some translations will say demon-possessed, and to me that's a kind of unfortunate choice of terminology because, well, what does the word possess mean, typically? When you're not talking about demons, when you possess something, what, what, what is it? You own it. You own it. It's yours, right? Now, the Greek word used in the New Testament here and translated either oppressed by demons or demon-possessed in some translations is this word daimonizome, which is from the word daimon, or demon. And properly translated, it is demonized. That is, coming under the power of a demon, a fallen angel. So it's just taking the noun for demon and putting a verb, a verb, a verb suffix on it, isome, demonized. So when Bible translations refer to this word daimonizome as demon-possessed, to me it kind of in English gives this really false impression that there's some kind of ownership that's implied because the word possess typically means to own something in English. It's, that's how we most commonly use it. To say that Satan or one of his demons might possess, might own a person, especially a believer, is just not theologically sound. Take a look at what John said, uh, or what Jesus said in John. Uh, praying to the Father, he says, I'm praying to them for them I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Demons do not possess, they do not own believers, because we have been redeemed, we've been purchased, we've been bought by the blood of the Lamb. So we are owned by who? By God, by Jesus, yes. Jesus owns us, nobody else, right? Now, that said, demons can and do attack press and influence all kinds of people, including believers. Remember Job? He was absolutely a genuine, devout, faithful believer in and follower of God, and yet he was subject to an all-out attack by Satan himself. Believers aren't like somehow like automatically immune to the attacks of the enemy just by being believers. In fact, I think it kind of puts a big target on our back because we're the ones who are going to be effective in the spiritual warfare against it. Uh, Ephesians 4 makes this really interesting point after kind of commanding us that we need to forgive one another and not let the sun go down on our anger. has this little point where it says, and give no opportunity to the devil, or the NIV translates it, and do not give the devil a foothold. So there's things that we as believers can do to give the enemy an opportunity, to give the enemy a foothold, to afflict us, to oppress us, Remember last week, we looked at the three, three of the roots of spiritual injury, sin, believing lies, and wounds, particularly where those wounds either get us to believe lies or get us to hold on to unforgiveness. When we're spiritually injured in these ways, the enemy knows just how to use those things as a foothold against us, a launching point, a beachhead for demonic attack. 
All that being said, it is very important for us as believers to recognize that demons are not creatures that we should be afraid of. We should not be terrified of them. Romans says that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We have the same Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit who raised up Jesus from the dead in the fullness of his power abiding within us as believers. Matthew says, but if it is by, this is Jesus talking, he says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. So when Jesus was casting out demons, he did so by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who dwells in us as believers. Now, for someone who's not a believer and therefore does not have the Holy Spirit, or for someone who's a believer and has the Holy Spirit but doesn't fully grasp, doesn't understand how like totally unequal God's power and the power of the Holy Spirit is, I can totally get, it's certainly understandable, how the idea of demons can be scary. But for a believer, we don't have to be afraid. Uh, the perspective that I try to have towards demons comes from this scripture that Carla and I have been really getting a kick out of lately. Um, it's uh, as part of uh, Paul's missionary journeys in, in Acts, and it says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God to proclaim to you this way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So for a believer, full of the Holy Spirit and confident in his power and his strength, demons aren't creatures of which we should be afraid. If anything, they're beings with which we can be greatly annoyed. Now, I don't want to be totally flippant here. The reality is that demons are evil, harmful, hateful creatures bent on our destruction. But I want us to be absolutely solid on the truth that we don't have to be afraid of them. They're just gross, they're pesky, and they have to be dealt with. I like to think of demons being kind of analogous to like the germs of the spiritual world. So for someone who's healthy, whose immune system is working as it should, it's not a big deal if they pick up something like a cell phone that's probably got billions of bacteria on it. Like, ew, gross. But I'm not afraid of the bacteria that are on my cell phone because I'm healthy, I have an immune system, it protects me. But for someone who's injured, for someone who has open wounds, for someone who doesn't have a properly functioning immune system, they're particularly vulnerable to infection by those same germs that normally wouldn't be a cause for concern, right? So in the same way, when in our lives, when there's unconfessed, unrepented sin in our lives, either our own sin or sin whose consequences has been passed down from generations before us, or when there's lies that we have accepted as if they're true, or when we hold on to unforgiveness as a result of the ways that we've been wounded, it leaves spiritual open wounds, which can give an opportunity, a foothold, for demons to have influence in our lives, kind of like a spiritual infection. Gross. So, how are we doing so far? Is it making sense? Anybody feeling a little uncomfortable? Well, remember, if you're in Christ, demons don't have to be scary, don't have to be frightening. They're just something we need to be aware of so that we can deal with them. First John says, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard for was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater 
than he who is in the world. What then shall we say things to all what then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? So, with that, let's keep moving on. Like I said, um, I, I had a section in here about the enemy's tactics uh, that the enemy uses in warfare against us, taking a look at the armor of God and looking at each piece and trying to answer the question of like, okay, this piece of armor, what's the specific attack that the enemy brings out against us that we need this particular piece of armor for? And it's really interesting to look at. Uh, I got a really kick out of uh, researching it, but it's not essential as a foundation for where we're going tonight, so we'll have to save that for another time. Let's skip over it for now. The good part is as believers, what does it look like for us to counterattack? We're, we're under attack. Like, there's no escaping it. It's there. So we've got this foundation about, about the soldiers and the enemy army. We've wrapped up with this fourth major category, this major issue of spiritual injury, spiritual unhealthiness. The million-dollar question is, what are we supposed to do about it? So we talked last week. There's a war going on. We're called to join the fight. As brothers and sisters of Christ, as members of one body, we are to minister to one another's needs, to come alongside those who are hurting, especially those who are hurting spiritually. So how do we actually go about doing it? We're going to take each of these roots of spiritual unhealthiness one at a time and see what it looks like to minister to those kinds of issues. In all cases, the absolute foundation for a person to experience healing is the work of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John 15. Apart from me, you can do... So, the first category, sin. When we talked last week about the issue of sin and iniquity, we looked at two key principles. First, walking in sin and disobedience leads us out from under the protection, under the blessing, under the favor of, of God's holy and righteous and good law. When we walk out from under his blessing and favor, we are instead walking into his disfavor. We're walking into a curse. Jesus took the eternal punishment for our sin. So, legally speaking, we are blameless. We have the righteousness of Christ on us, both now and for eternity. But, practically speaking, here on earth, there are very real consequences for our sin and very real curses associated with it. So that was one principle. The second principle we looked at last week is the fact that the curse of sin has a tendency to carry on down through the generations unless something is done to specifically cancel that curse. So the foundation for how to deal with the curse of sin, how to heal the spiritual injury that it has dealt us in this life, is neatly summarized here in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins, we are opening the door for God to cleanse us from unrighteousness. God is absolutely just. He can be nothing but just. It's his character, it's his nature, it's who he is. And he's already promised that sin, that disobedience, carries a curse with it. God's desire is for us to be healed, to be cleansed, for the power of that curse to be broken in our lives. But he's only gonna do it his way. He's only gonna do it in line with his own perfect justice. If we're not willing to confess our sin as sin, to acknowledge our need to be forgiven and cleansed, he's not going to force it on us. Now, after this life, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be no putting on a mask, there's no beating around the bush, there is nothing that will be hidden, 
there's going to be no concealing. And at that point, if there's sin that we haven't confessed yet in this life, it will be confessed then, and it will be forgiven because of the work of Christ. The choice is up to us whether we want to confess our sins to God now while we're still here on earth and receive that healing and that forgiveness, or we can wait until after this life and confess it then, and of course we will receive his forgiveness because of the work of Christ that he's done for us on the cross. We will be forgiven, we will be healed. Eternally speaking, we are cleansed from our unrighteousness. Uh, we can see in the book of James that there's this direct correlation between confession of sin and healing here on earth. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. When we are in need of healing as a result of sin, the first step is to confess the sin, and to pray for healing, to repent of it, and to pray that God would break off any curse that's resulted from that sin. If our need for healing is really profound, sometimes it can be helpful to have someone walk through that process with us. Take a look at how he, he says it. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So I don't think it's necessary for us, for every little nitpicky sin that we do, that we need to go tell someone else and have them pray for us. We can just, God, I messed up, confess it. Forgive me. Thank you that you're forgiving me. I repent. I turn away. And we move on with our lives. But when we're not finding spiritual healing in just our own personal confession and prayer, sometimes it can be helpful to have somebody walk through that with you and pray with you over it. But what about curses that aren't a result of our own personal sin, but have come down to us as a result of generational sin, of iniquity? Well, Christ's work on the cross can heal us from that as well. Galatians talks about this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. When Christ took our sin upon himself on the cross, he took every curse as well, redeeming us from the curse. Well, what does it look like to actually take that redemption into our lives for generational issues? Once again, it starts with confession and repentance. And a sin doesn't have to be my own for me to confess the fact that, yep, that's sin, and for me to make the choice that I'm going to turn away from that. And that's what repentance means. The word simply means to turn away. And we can be grieved over the sin of our ancestors and repent of it without taking personal responsibility for it. Second Corinthians tells us, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. When we recognize sin, in our family line, godly grief acknowledges that sin and declares that we are going to turn away from that sin. So here's an example. God, I confess that the sin of anger has run in my family line. I hereby repent of it. I will not carry the sin on in my own life. Thank you, Father, for your forgiveness by the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, I ask that you would release me from every curse that has come on me as a result of the sin in my family line. Amen. It's really incredible how a prayer, just that simple, can have a profound effect on a person's life. The bottom line is this. Sin and iniquity leave us spiritually wounded. But Jesus' death on the cross purchased our right to be healed. And we can lay hold of that healing by confession and repentance. 
Isaiah 59 talks about how your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Your sin has hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. But check this out. Talking about Jesus, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The second category of spiritual injury is believing lies. Now, one thing that makes ministering to lies sometimes kind of challenging is that they're not always obvious on the surface. The devil's a schemer, he's crafty, he's deceptive. He's even deceptive in how he goes about deceiving us. Ephesians tells us to put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What's a scheme? It's a plan. Not just any plan, it's a hidden plan, right? one that's hidden, and the devil has very specific individual plans of attack, schemes against each individual person. When we figure out what the devil's unique scheme is against us in our lives, it gets a whole lot easier for us to recognize the lies that he tries to get us to believe, like, oh, that's a lie. Like, I recognize that plan of attack. Like, that's what he's been coming at me for years with. But if we don't know his schemes, then if there's lies that we believe and we're not conscious of them or we're not even aware of what the truth of the matter is, what do we do about that? Well, yes, God to show us. Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We may not be aware of the devil's particular schemes against us, his particular plan of attack for us individually, the particular lies that he's led us to believe in our lives. But God does, right? And if we have his Holy Spirit within us, then he can show us. The Holy Spirit will speak to us, open our eyes to see the lies and to see the truth. And not only that, not only can the Holy Spirit show us the lie, he can show us what was the circumstance, or what was the situation, or what was the wound, the event, whatever it is that brought us to accept that lie as if it was truth for us in our lives. And a lot of times, recognizing what that circumstance was, what that event was that brought us to accept the lie is a huge step toward breaking the hold of that lie in our hearts. Now, obviously, once we recognize a lie that the enemy wants us to believe, it, it can take a pretty conscious effort for us to submit our thoughts to what we now know to be the truth. Second Corinthians tells us we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. We take our thoughts captive. And the ones that aren't in line with the truth of God's word, we have to submit them to the truth of Christ. Now, the actual process of dealing with lies in the context of ministry and our counterattack can be very similar to the one for sin. We pray something like, Lord, I confess, I have believed a lie that I am a failure and will never measure up. I repent of that lie. I choose to no longer believe the lie and walk in it as if it is true. Thank you for the redemption that you bought by your blood, Jesus Christ. Please transform my thinking and renew my mind so that I can walk in the truth from now on. Amen. Romans 12 tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This transformation, this renewing of our mind is the work of the Holy Spirit within us. When we refuse to be conformed to the world, 
You know, when we ask God to do his thing, to transform us and renew us by his Holy Spirit within us, he'll do it. It's his thing. It's what he does. Wounds. So in the context of ministering to wounds, we've talked about the two really dangerous spiritual side effects of how we are wounded. One is believing lies. We've already discussed how to deal with that. And the second is holding on to unforgiveness or bitterness. Now, what is it about unforgiveness that makes it so dangerous for us, or such a dangerous state? Do you know that harboring unforgiveness actually gives the enemy a legal right to oppress us? You remember the parable of the servant who owed his master like a bajillion dollars, and the master forgave him of all that debt? And then that servant like goes to another fellow servant who owes him like five bucks, and he won't forgive him? You remember how the story ends? Let's take a look. Matthew 18. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. The Greek word is literally the torturers. The hell you should pay every day. Okay, so that's the end of the story. Now look at Jesus' commentary. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So as a result of unforgiveness, this guy is delivered to the jailers, the torturers, the people whose specific job it was to torture him. Anybody find it surprising? Jesus said the Father would do the same thing? I think it's pretty surprising. So who do you think Jesus is talking to in this parable? Surely he's talking to those Pharisees, those like religious like unrepentance, and he's like making some kind of connection with the eternal torture of hell for those who haven't come to saving faith in Christ. Yeah, not so much on the Pharisees thing. We, when we look a few verses back, Jesus was talking to his disciples. Here's the question that led to Jesus telling that parable. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants, and on, 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 on. Hmm. Interesting. So, when Jesus concludes with, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, he's talking to believers. Huh. And what's the so also that his heavenly Father will do? Deliver them over to the torturers. Ah. So who do you think are the torturers? Who is at work in this world with the desire and intention to torture, to harass, and oppress believers? Demons. So when we forgive our brothers, we're under the blessing and protection of our Father. We're obeying what he's commanded us to do. When we refuse to forgive, we move out from under that blessing and protection. We're delivered over to the torturers. We give the enemy legal ground to harass us. Does that sound pretty extreme? Well, here's another well-known thing that Jesus said. Everybody knows this one. But he gives a pretty surprising bit of commentary afterwards. The Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, so on and so on, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or from the evil one. Now the commentary. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
Again, of course, we know that in the eternal judgment, all of our sins will be forgiven because of the saving work of Christ. Once we come to faith in Christ, our eternal salvation is not at all dependent on us, on ourselves, on our actions. Not even a little bit. So when Jesus says that our unforgiveness subjects us to unforgiveness from God, he can't possibly be talking about our eternal state. So he's got to be talking about some kind of consequences here on earth, right? When we hold on to unforgiveness, we remain subject to the spiritual curse of our own trespasses, our own things that need to be forgiven here on earth. We remain subject to be delivered over to the torturers. So it is absolutely vital for our spiritual health that we make the conscious effort to forgive those who have wounded us. Remember, we're told, Jesus says, but I say to you who here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And in Matthew, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see the level of forgiveness that we're commanded to adhere to? We're to forgive so completely that our response is to bless those who hurt us, to pray for them, to love them, it absolutely will not do to have this superficial, half-hearted, like, oh, okay, yeah, I forgive you, whatever. You might remember earlier this year, in the study of the life of David, we were looking at 1 Samuel 14, and David's son Absalom, he's like living in exile, and David kind of begrudgingly like lets him come back to Jerusalem. But it's pretty obvious that David hasn't completely forgiven him, because his son Absalom is basically like living in house arrest until he sets a guy's field on fire to force a confrontation. And you know what happened? Because David hadn't reached that point of full and genuine forgiveness, the end result, Absalom rebelled against him. The end result of that was David's son, whom he loved, but hadn't forgiven, died as a result of this whole rebellion and stuff. So our forgiveness needs to not only be sincere, it has to be complete. None of this like, ah, it's okay, I guess I forgive you, while we still hold on to bitterness in our hearts. That's not true. So, now that we've looked at how to minister to the spiritual injuries of sin and lies and wounds, it's time to look at what are we to do with the spiritual infections that can result from those injuries, from demonization. What are we supposed to do about them? Anybody know? Cast them out! When Jesus came to the earth, he set the example, casting out demons who were, uh, from people who were oppressed and afflicted. And it was a big deal when he started doing that. Mark chapter 1, and they were all amazed. The questions among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. People were amazed when Jesus silenced and drove out demons, because this was something new. It was something they hadn't seen before. Now, we looked last week at this verse from 2 Corinthians. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but will have divine power to destroy strongholds, to destroy arguments, and every lofty opinion against the knowledge of Christ, take every thought carefully away Christ. In our flesh, in ourselves, apart from Christ, we have no power and no authority over demons. But when Jesus came to the earth, he changed all of that. He equipped us with his spiritual authority and with the overwhelming power of his Holy Spirit. And it started when he appointed the twelve. 
He appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and they, he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Where did I go? Sorry. There. So Jesus gave authority to cast out demons from the get-go, and he expected them to exercise that authority. And that's what Jesus said when he sent the twelve out. Go heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Later, he sends out an even bigger group of 72 with a commission to heal, and obviously with the authority to heal demons. He starts out in verse 9, heal the sick uh, in it, in the town that they're going to, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. They come back a few verses later, the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And guess what? That charge continues for us as believers today. Take a look at the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Hold on with you to the end of the age. So when Jesus says to teach the disciples that they make of all the nations to observe all that he commanded them, what do you think he meant by all? I think he meant all. Like everything, right? And that includes his commands to heal the sick, to cast out demons. The parallel passage from the Great Commission in Mark says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel of the whole to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They'll speak in their tongues, they'll pick up serpents with their hands, if they drink in deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. And in John, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus sends us out in the same manner that the Father had sent Jesus into the world, to make disciples, to heal, and yeah, to cast out demons. Well, how do we do it? By the power of the Holy Spirit that they received, right? And what we have received. You want to hear something crazy? Jesus doesn't only want us to do the works that he did, he wants us to do even greater works. He says so. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So as believers, we have the biblical mandate and power and authority by the Holy Spirit to deal with demons, to cast them out, as we minister to the spiritual wounds of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, it's very intentional, that I'm addressing this issue of demonization last. And that should be our pattern for ministry as well. When there is unconfessed, unrepentant sin in a person's life, when a person believes lies that grants the enemy power over them in their lives, when a person holds on to unforgiveness as a result of the way they've been wounded, then the enemy has legal ground to be there. And remember that demons are, you know, they're like the germs of the spiritual world. So if there's a person who has a spiritual injury, they're going to take the opportunity to form an infection. And so if someone has a spiritual open wound, so to speak, demons are going to want to come mess with them. And sure, you might be able to cast a demon out of a person, but if you don't also deal with the root issues for why the demon is there, it's liable to come back. Jesus said so in Matthew. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person who passes through very waterless places seeking rest, finding none, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds a house. 
and the swap, the quarter. Then it goes and it brings uh, with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And then they're there, and the last day of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this generation. It's a pretty bold statement for a demon to make. I'm going to return to my house. When there are these issues, a spiritual injury at work in a person's life, it doesn't just leave the door open to spiritual oppression. It actually gives demons the right to be there. And even though sometimes they can be cast out, they know their rights. And they're just going to want to come back. If instead we deal with the root causes of sin, of lies, of wounds, now it doesn't necessarily mean that the demons just going to like pack up and leave automatically, but it does mean that their status changes. They're no longer tenants with a right to be there. They become squatters who can be legally evicted and banned from reentry. So, once we've reached this point, we've dealt with the root issues, and it's time to cast the demons out, what does that actually look like? Once again, I like this example of Paul. She kept going on for many days, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out at the very hour. So, don't be fooled by the Hollywood picture. It didn't take some elaborate ritual. There wasn't any sprinkling of holy water. There wasn't like a big metal cross. No specialist was flown in from the Vatican. Paul simply commanded the thing to come out in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it obeyed. And we're confident of the authority that Jesus has delegated to us dealing with spiritual warfare. It doesn't have to be this overly dramatic, complicated process. It's just the power of the Lord Jesus Christ at work through us at his Holy Spirit of our dwelling within us. So, that's what it looks like for us as believers to make our counterattack in the spiritual war, to reclaim ground in people's lives that's been taken by the enemy. And I imagine some of y'all might be thinking like, whoa, this is some heavy stuff, this is too much, I don't know if I'm ready to go out against demons, this is spiritual warfare stuff, it's not for me. Let me reassure you again, for a believer in Jesus, it doesn't need to be a scary subject. Second Timothy tells us, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. We don't have to be afraid because, you know what, we're on the side of the one who's already won the victory. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over them in him. We're fighting against an enemy who, in truth, has already been disarmed. It's only by getting us to believe lies or to walk out from under the protection that God has given us that the enemy has any power against us at all. When we're walking with the Lord and under the protection, we're not the ones who need to be afraid. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe in what? Shudder, tremble, they're afraid. The demons shudder because they're very well aware of what the final outcome of the spiritual war is going to be. Jesus, when he was uh, going and, and uh, there was a demon-possessed person there, behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Demons know their time is coming. They know that there is no resisting the all-powerful God of the universe. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also in him graciously give us all things? 
later, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, height, or depth, or anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus has conquered the enemy. And we participate in that victory as we fully rely on Jesus and his work on the cross. Revelation, talking about believers, how they've overcome the enemy, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So, the power, remember, it's God's, not ours. Remember how we saw that the authority to cast out demons is something new that came to Christ? They were all amazed, and questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him? Well, as we come face to face with spiritual warfare, it is absolutely essential that we remember who is the one with all the power and all the authority. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth, on earth has been given to me, to Jesus. Jesus is the one who has all authority. As we walk in obedience to his will for our lives, he delegates some of that authority to us so that we have everything that we need for the ministry that he calls us to. Second Corinthians such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not by the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let us be confident in the Lord, who is our sufficiency. And don't make this mistake. For if anyone who thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Because he gives more grace, therefore God says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Even the archangels, which I imagine are like pretty powerful beings, have that same mindset. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he didn't presume to pronounce the blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So, as we're engaging in spiritual warfare against the enemy, against his soldiers, against his schemes, as we launch our counterattack to reclaim lost ground, let's remember the war has already been won, and all the power is from God alone. And with that, I want to close this out with this doxology from, from Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we thank you so much that you have won the victory. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to be afraid because you have already defeated the enemy. You have conquered sin and death and Satan by your work on the cross, by rising from the dead. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've empowered us. You've enabled us. You've commissioned us to go and be part of this work that you have for us, of being part of this spiritual war. Lord, may we be encouraged. May we be uplifted. And Lord, may we be aware of the enemy's schemes against us so that we will know how to resist them. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.